0: Welcome to episode 64, John Lennon is in the back of my head, PVO, you are the professor of course, professor of politics and national uh, political editor for the 10 Network, Peter Van Onselen joining us as always, I'm The Hack. Hugh G'day Mr. Hugh. G'day, and we're 64 episodes in man, will you still need me, will you still feed me?
1: Good <laughs> lines. Well, so we, we, is retirement age 60 these days or 65? Are we allowed to retire after one more episode?
0: I think everyone right now is thinking that if they've got a job at all, retirement is not in prospect.
1: Um, uh, Well, and also because they've spent up all their super, right? So then as the years roll by, that's it. They access their super too early under the government's very generous scheme to let them spend all of their retirement savings to push their way through the pandemic.
0: Yeah. Look, um, there are are the, the merest tendrils of possibly some slightly better news out of Victoria, and this is heavily couched only in the mm. sense that the new infection rate seems to be possibly signing. You're always scared when you make things like this peaking. The death toll is still intolerably high and dreadful. Um, but the signs, because that's, that one lags the other, there's just possibly the signs that all this pain Victoria is going through might possibly be starting to squeeze down on the new infection rate. Um, but uh, the whole country now now deeply in, a, in an economic cataclysm as a consequence um, what's your assessment, Peter, as to uh, as this thing moves under our very feet? How how governments at different levels, particularly at the Commonwealth level, who holds most of the purse strings, um, how they're handling it?
1: Well, look, look in in comparative terms, uh, in a global sense, I think that Australia has quite self evidently done well managing this virus, notwithstanding the second wave in Victoria, frankly, uh, because one of the key features was dealing with it well the first time so that if a second wave did eventuate as a lot of countries have seen the health system is geared up and the the we're able to if you like to manage it with enough ventilators enough icu beds uh, be ready or more ready than we would have otherwise been for contact tracing even if there's been some deficiencies in victoria and so on so in, in a global sense getting it right for the first wave has helped us deal with the second wave so a big tick internationally for that the understandable caveat is that we were in a lucky geographical position versus where this thing seemed to come from, from overseas. So we had a chance to learn from countries that didn't have a chance to do the same. So, you know, there was an advantage there. Uh, in terms of how we did to our compared to our nearest neighbour, I think New Zealand has done better, clearly, because they went for, now they had an easier situation. They're a smaller country, less international return travellers and all the rest of it which it was a a feature point of of the numbers but they went for elimination not suppression that worked for them um yes and albeit slightly easier position they've done better than us so far it would seem uh but in terms of the internals with that caveat that we've done quite well globally with the internals I, i think that at the moment the andrews government is coming in for a lot of blame and there's problems there they're coming in for a lot of blame around contact tracing problems and centralization of the health system and and what what developed but i do feel like some of it is unfair and i do feel like the commonwealth has avoided its equal culpability in some of this i'm thinking about the federal realities of quarantining certainly the aged care sector's responsibilities there. And the fact that Dan Andrews, and I'll I'll let you speak. Sorry, I know I'm ranting, but Dan Andrews embraced the security guard concept for hotel quarantining. Let's not forget, he advocated hotel quarantining inside the national cabinet at a time when the prime minister and others were suggesting people should just self isolate at home. So, you know, it went wrong with the security guards. This was a security guard agency that was formally approved on the, federal list of options for security guard companies. Uh, Security guards were used in WA effectively, but it was just some bad luck, it would seem, with what happened in Victoria. So, you know, to to throw it all on Dan Andrews, I think is just, frankly, uh, ideological partisan gump. Uh, There's
0: a couple of things there. One is it's being reported that one of the reasons why there was a loosening of the hotel quarantine in Victoria was because... Ah, uh, one of those people in hotel quarantine uh, it's, its now being reported—appeared to take their own life, mm. and so the—the—the the, the pendulum, if you like, swung back towards trying to accommodate the—the uh, the desires of the of the people who are in quarantine to make sure that they weren't under so much pressure that this might happen uh, to others. The other thing, which I think is a, is a profound concern. Is the number of 1,000 now active cases among healthcare workers across Victoria? So that whatever we're doing, there's two things out of this. One is it's a it's a clear lesson as to how infectious um, this virus can be. That uh, medical professionals who have training and some access, it may not be perfect access to um, PPE, are still getting infected at such yeah. enormous rates that puts strains itself onto the all these places because they can't go to shifts, they have to be quarantined, they have to get better. But how did we manage to be, with those warnings, that first wave which gave us that opportunity to get a warning, all the things you you described there, how is it possible that a 1,000 healthcare workers in one state can come down with a potentially deadly disease when we've been warned against it, when we're told by Greg Hunt, the federal health minister, that there's abundant PPE available and being shipped in to help how can that happen it seems as though there's been some dreadful lapse or perhaps a sequence of lapses
1: yeah yeah, yeah. good good question it was interesting actually on, on the project the other week we interviewed a nurse uh, who uh, he he was in isolation because he contracted uh, the virus and we were asking him exactly that how you know how does this work and his answers were really interesting he firstly made the point uh, that you know it's always possible of course with the level of community transmission that he picked it up Outside of the facility that he was working in, but he suspected it's more likely that he's got it inside the facility. And obviously, with the quantum of numbers of healthcare workers getting it, that would you would think statistically be the significant uh, contracting moment. He he thought that the aged care sector, because he he was helping elderly people, but he was a nurse from a hospital, but they were being shifted into helping the elderly who were arriving at this hospital. He said that uh, it's it's much more physical work. Uh, and you know, because they 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 can't help themselves, a lot of these frail elderly people, and the level of the physicality of the work, he thought was perhaps a factor uh, in the breaches of PPE. You know, just by virtue of the sort of things that you're doing. Uh, may I mean I don't. You know, we didn't go into this micro detail, but it sounded like the possibility that gear gets knocked off, or that you know, because it's so physical as as work goes, that there can be breaches in the PPP and uh, PPE. Now that's not necessarily justifiable but it's something that as i think you're saying you would like to have thought that they would be ready for all of those sorts of realities uh, and perhaps give them even higher grade equipment to be able to you know guard against that reality so uh, it's yeah it's, it's it's hard to explain but that's the biggest I, that that's that's almost um, one of the biggest fallout points in this disaster. I mean, the aged care is probably first. Second is the number of healthcare workers getting it. Don't you think? Uh, I think those are bigger than the security breach, frankly. Yeah,
0: I, I think so, because you need people to go to uh, go to work. Um, mm. And, they, you know, they're human. Uh, one of the things you see with Ebola outbreaks, for example, is that um, Aspen, which is an Australian company, flew in with a goal to... Uh, make sure that all the health workers that they were putting in when they went into West Africa in the last big Ebola outbreak would survive because so many were dying when they went to help, And they succeeded with that and got a lot of international kudos uh, for being able to do that. And it just does seem strange that um, there have been so many breaches because if you have in your family right now in Victoria a healthcare worker, a nurse, all those other allied people who work in the hospitals, you're right about the physical work particularly at age care. My brother works in age He says he's exhausted most of the time. There's a lot of lifting. But then you have the other thing. You're often dealing with people who've got dementia and so on. And mm. the sight of people completely covered up like space people are likely to freak them out, cause them to perhaps react in different ways. And and again, that PPE is not completely intact against um, against sort of tearing or thrashing or other sorts of things that might go on. Uh, it does remind us of just how difficult this is and how if we really want to you know, hopefully we'll come through this calamitous situation in Victoria uh, in the coming weeks. But for the longer term, until some other solution comes along, we're going to need to keep drilling down and thinking harder and harder and harder about how we keep those health workers well. Because one of the things we found also, those health workers, if you looked in those early breakouts, both in China and in Italy, because the viral load is so high that they're exposed to, it's not just catching a bit at a low viral load from a temporary contact with someone down at a cafe or something, they're exactly. in there and they're surrounded by it. It's much more dangerous and harder for their bodies and, to fight it.
1: And and the numbers are hard to exactly quantify, but a thousand healthcare workers getting this means that of those thousand professional healthcare workers, anywhere between, depending on their viral load, as you mentioned, and their ages and their, you know, pre-existing conditions anywhere between five and 30 of those thousand could well die from coronavirus uh, as a result of catching it and they've caught it in the line of duty helping the community doing the frontline work and and that's super disturbing if there is a capacity for their equipment to be upgraded uh, and if there is a reality about processes if they could have been better uh, to protect them because then that's lives lost that absolutely never should have been by people who are putting themselves on the line.
0: Certainly makes that sort of brush off. Oh, there's millions of masks and warehouses. We've sent them down there. Seem a little glib. Um, you know, we mm. obviously need a lot more than that. We're also seeing at the moment in the, on the economic level, uh, once again, an opening up of more funds coming from the Commonwealth uh, extensions of, of JobKeeper, um, you know, a whole bunch of measures, that are designed to try to just sustain us through here. There's talk of $300 billion now, the blowout as it goes um, at a a budget. Do you have any any sense as to how that's working at a fiscal level?
1: Look, I'm a lot less worried about the size of the debt that's being accrued here than I am about the size of the hole that we're about to fall into economically going forward. Debt, Yes, it's concerning. It's ticking up towards 40% of GDP now in this country. However, uh, it's very low by global standards, even at that rate. Uh, and we have enormous capacity to keep building debt to be able to try to push the economy into a better position. Uh, so the debt worries me less because you can grow your way out of debt to some extent. You know, if if you can keep GDP moving, the size of the debt reduces over time as a result of uh, you know the growth in the economy. However, what worries me the most uh, is actually just that the the economic growth is stifled, both because of the virus, potentially because of the response to it, because of the lingering effects of the virus globally, not just here domestically, because of shut borders as much as they may well be necessary from a health perspective. I'm much more worried now, actually, about the state of the economy than I probably was two or, or three or four months ago, because I feel like this cliff is coming uh, and the government's reacting. And I'm not necessarily critical that they're not doing enough because I, I feel like there's almost an inevitability about it because there's only so much that government can do. And then at the end of that point, we just face the reality that, that we're absolutely in recession, but we may well be genuinely in depression uh, and, you know, hence the first depression since the 1930s.
0: What, And when, how deep and when does it start? Because the the early fear was that with the end of the JobKeeper and the elevated JobSeeker at the end of September, it might happen then. There have been extensions. It's been more targeted. But uh, Mm. when will the cliff hit us? Because at the moment, we've got this somewhat, it's like a phony war going on because people are drawing down on their super, they're spending some of that. The JobKeeper has helped. A lot of people have not lost their jobs, although they might be nervous about them. When are we going to really
1: see reality biting? Well, I, I think I actually think it's going to—it it probably won't be a cliff as such. As you think ab- about this, it's more likely just to be a, a, a steady downward spiral. I think, and and there will be moments, jerky moments within that. You know, when the amount of money going into job keeper uh, and job seeker is reduced, uh, when it's taken off certain sectors, uh, as businesses face the reality that they're trying to fight on. But they won't or they can't anymore. So they declare defeat uh, in terms of insolvency, particularly smaller businesses, uh, many of which have been propped up, by the way, as a result of these benefits, where they might have died a natural death as a business in the ordinary course of events, much less during a pandemic. Uh, all of these elements, and then of course you add to the unemployment rate, and they're now projecting that that unemployment rate is going to tick well past ten percent, courtesy of what's happened in Victoria, and and the worry. For me is that we know the treasurer said this himself we know that you pile on the unemployment rate in a time of crisis much much more quickly than people come off unemployment benefits and there's a double hit or a triple hit in many ways to the economy when people linger on unemployment i mean first up there's just the cost of those unemployment benefits uh, and what that does to the budget secondly There's the lost income, quite self-evidently. Not only do you have to pay people who are on unemployment benefits, but you don't get their taxable income that you otherwise would normally get. And then the third impact is the social impact in a broad sense. You know, uh, people perhaps who have never experienced this before becoming part of the the medium to long-term unemployed, the, the social dislocation that it creates broadly in their social circles and in their family set. And all of those impacts then filter on into the economy. So it's just or cascade on, I should say. So it's a real, like I I am quite bearish now about all of this. Uh, So I don't think that there's a, a cliff that happens, for example, at the end of this year. I think that, for example, property prices will start to look pretty bad at the end of the next summer period where they would normally uptick somewhat so in other words you know the first half of next year um or the first quarter of next year and i think on it goes uh, and so it's it's yeah it's very worrying and all of this is before huey even contemplate the prospect of a third wave uh, if this virus was to again get out of control
0: yeah not as much fun as we'd like it to be is what we could say pvo uh, we will take a quick break uh, back in just a moment
1: Good day, Sandra Sully. Here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you're looking for more to listen to, head over to Short Black with me next. I talk to all kinds of amazing women who are making a difference. Good women, great chat.
0: Well, welcome back uh, to the Professor and the Hack, uh, Episode 64. Here, um, uh, congratulations to you, PVO, by the way, because you were um, vociferous in your uh, uh, belief that Parliament, Federal Parliament, uh, should be uh, in action, uh, mm. the parliamentary sittings were being cancelled by the federal government. Uh, the, you led an uproar against that given the times we were in. Labor got onto it or, you know, now we are getting um, an August the 24th resumption of parliament. Um, why did they change their mind and bring parliament back?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, the, the, the Prime Minister has decided to bring Parliament back and he's going to get Victorians to self isolate uh, for 14 days beforehand. They can do it at home and then fly after that, but that means their entire household in Victoria would have to self isolate with them. A few are doing that, but not most. Uh, many are already, therefore, in self isolation uh, in hotels or in their apartments in Canberra, uh, and they have to do it for the full 14 days before that 24th date. So that's why they all were turning up there. Uh, on Saturday, Sunday and Monday uh, to give themselves that time. Now, um, the PM could have done this with enough notice for the previous sitting periods that he decided to cancel, but he chose not to. Now he's decided to do it. The question, therefore, is why, I suppose. I think the answer to that uh, is that he's, reactive, clearly, uh, to to criticism that he's received for not letting Parliament come back and not going through the process of finding a way for Victorians to be part of that. Uh, But I think it's sort of built, in some respects, off of his reaction after the bushfires. He was very criticised for not reacting quickly or not reacting uh, in the right way initially uh, to the bushfires and his holiday in Hawaii. He doesn't want to be caught out again. And I think he got a sense that perhaps there was a mood building in relation to the issue of parliament that he wanted to get in front of that you know he was worried genuinely worried uh, i think that he might be left behind on this one so he decided to switch courses uh, when it came to that that's what i think has happened there and he's done it so it appears inconsistent as a result of that um but you know it's not if you like um you know, like it, I think he, he had other options. He's decided not to go down the virtual path. Uh, there's, there's other paths that he could have travelled on this. Only 12, by the way, Hugh, 12 out of 50 Victorian MPs across both sides of politics are, in fact, self-isolating and doing this. Uh, and a lot of them were whinging and moaning about it, uh, not wanting to have to do it. But, you know, the PM came in on this one and said, bad luck. This is what we're doing.
0: Was part of his fear that he was starting to look aloof, and that the you know the Labour opposition um, wasn't in a position to really criticise him on many levels in detail. They were trying to be bipartisan and somewhat above the fray, but a pretty easy hit is why are you running away from uh, from from scrutiny? And Parliament has a role. In fact, it has a constitutional role. That simply the cost of not having the Parliament becomes greater than the cost of having it.
1: Yeah, I I guess that's right. I mean, I've been a critic of this, as you know, from the get-go. I I don't think he's returning Parliament uh, and therefore forcing Victorians to self-isolate because he has some strong belief in the parliamentary process in the Westminster system. I think it's an optics thing. You know, he he wanted it to just be a rubber stamp, frankly, for executive government during the course of this pandemic. Uh, He he cancelled so many sittings and then had one or two day sittings to ram legislation through over and over again. This, allowing it to come back for an extended period of time with the impost on the Victorians of having to self-isolate, this is not driven by an ideological belief in what the Founding Fathers would regard as an absolute necessity of democracy. This is this is a pragmatically driven response to criticism. I can't really see it. there's anything more than that.
0: So what does it do at this next parliament? There's obviously question time. Uh, the, the optics of that will be interesting because... Labour will not want to be seen to be, you know, it's a difficult game for Labour. They, 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 they want to look as if they are being uh, up to the task of opposition at a time of national crisis, presumably. Um, that'll be an unusual question time set of, uh, of, 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 well, not hearings, but as a piece of political theatre it goes on during the course of that week of the sittings. Uh, it'll be
1: different to most, won't it? yeah look i mean even the, the few examples that we've had of parliament sitting up until now have been interesting because they've avoided um you know they've, they've avoided the more adversarial combative style quite a few times because they haven't thought that the optics of that would be good in the time of crisis it actually made it a more informative um a, a more informative theater uh, if less theatrical i suppose uh, i think that'll be the the, the tone again although The opposition, whether this works for them or not, they seem to be getting a little bit more pointed in some of their criticisms.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So um, what's the legislation then that they'll be dealing with?
1: Well, we don't know for sure yet. I mean, there are some aspects of changes to things like JobKeeper that they'll have to get through, but a lot of those will be uncontested. So it's probably more just that there's going to be a situation where, um, you know, there'll be the question time side of things with Labor pressing the government about what they aren't changing and could change in some of the legislation, but then they'll ultimately support the, you know, certainly things like the extension of JobKeeper. They might oppose though, the attempts to sort of wind it back. But again, some of those changes will be regulatory and not require legislation. Um, Labor will probably want to get after them about deficiencies with the COVID safe app. Um, But again, that's not a legislative matter either. Uh, This is why, by the way, Labor wanted the house and the Senate to sit because the Senate could have sat, on its own without the government being able to shut it down procedurally. Um, but it chose not to. Labor decided to just shut the Senate down because the government, the the coalition, the prime minister was shutting down the house. Uh, yeah. The Senate sitting on its own uh, is, is hard legislatively because, you know, it, it doesn't, uh, well, you know, the, the bills don't tend to originate in the Senate.
0: So let's discuss the Senate. We've seen Rex Patrick, uh, who came in there basically on what was the, the Xenophon tide out of South Australia. Uh, the Central Alliance senator has quit that party. He was basically in an unwinnable position uh, to go in there as uh, the number two on the ticket. Um, mm. And so he's going to go as an independent there. But it, it's the Senate could be interesting over the next uh, the next phase as the House of Review um, what could we had that double dissolution election, which uh, Turnbull called, and it uh, was criticised for then bringing in a lot of um, people because of the lower threshold uh, to get the number of votes to get in, and that some fringe parties, you know, the Fraser Anning's etc., came in on that. Um, so, as a consequence of that, not directly, but but that was, that was the downstream consequence of that. Um, what do you see the Senate makeup being like? Um, because some of those who came in in that uh, 16 are going to be out, given their two terms, this time around, aren't they? Or the next time around?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, the most interesting feature of it is, so whenever you have a double dissolution election, the the subsequent first return of the half senate election, which we've already now had in 2019, that half tends to be mostly the minor party players because what they do is anyone with the smaller vote uh ratios tend to go in the first half not the second so the greens had a tough 2019 election because they had so many of their senators from around the country up for re-election but they actually did quite well in getting them re-elected so at the next election there aren't that many greens up there aren't that many of the um minor party people up Um, so therefore you would expect to actually see an increase in the number of crossbenchers at the next election, in particular the Greens. So it wouldn't surprise me at all, even if, for example, Scott Morrison had a relatively resounding victory in the lower house, um, you know, off the back of the pandemic and and his personal popularity as well, if that holds, it still wouldn't surprise me if you had quite a different result in the Senate where because of what happened in 2016 with the double dissolution, that second round of half-Senate people facing re-election, the Greens could well pick up a whole bunch of seats and possibly get the balance of power in their own right in the Senate. And that would be fascinating. Uh, Even if there was a change of government in the lower house, that would be fascinating because a Green control of the balance of power in the Senate, that stifles the legislative agenda of a coalition government if Labor decide to be obstructionist or it forces a new incoming Labor government if they were to win over Scott Morrison to the left if they want to get legislation through in the Senate because of the Greens. So that I think is the most likely scenario.
0: Almost more of a nightmare for the Labour Party (laughs) than for the (laughs) Coalition, because the Coalition doesn't mind having an enemy.
1: Exactly, they won't achieve anything legislatively, um, but then they can at least bash politically, this is what John Howard often did quite successfully, bash politically, Labour for lurching to the left and supporting the Greens and and all the rest of it. But. Uh, not ultimately get as much achieved legislatively as they would like um, because they don't control the the upper house.
0: Better a good, clean enemy than an unreliable friend sometimes, that's for sure. Uh, As we go with every day, we move closer to the Queensland state election Um, and uh, there was a period early on in the pandemic where there was, led by Peter Dutton, an absolute hammering of the Premier there, Anastasia Palaszczuk, over her closing of the borders. Um, There was, you know, almost daily attacks in you know, in fairly pointed language from Peter Dutton as the Home Affairs Minister about just what a chaotic, disastrous decision it was. Palaszczuk historically is looking quite good on her borders, and uh, Peter Dutton's gone strangely quiet in hammering that one
1: home. <laughs> uh, I, I think that, that- yeah, I think that result's going to be really interesting. I mean, it's only in October that they go to the polls up there in Queensland, uh, so we're only months away. You know, it's before the presidential election which there's so much focus on internationally. Uh, what will happen? Well, technically, on recent two-party results, the, the entirely dysfunctional and divided LMP are actually ahead, believe it or not, on most of the two-party figures up in the state election up there in Queensland. However, Anastasia Palaszczuk, as Premier, is getting close to 70% approval for her handling of the covid crisis and you would think that would have only gone up in recent days and weeks with the most with the next round of polling because of you know what's been shown to be you know her positioning on the borders being the, the more accurate one you know with this second wave occurring now i'll be interested to see whether that shifts the two party vote because of you know, in a campaign or whether a bit like what anna bly faced in the wake of the floods where she was popular personally for that but her party was unpopular uh, there is still the possibility of a change of government in the offing i i suspect the incumbent wins but you never know it'll it'll be a nice indicator for other elections around the joint that are going to follow where leaders are being heavily given a tick rather than a cross for their handling of covid i think mark mcgowan's in a different position in wa i think he wins either way at the start of next year but scott morrison will be watching closely marshall We'll be certainly watching closely from South Australia as well. Uh, it'll be an early indicator for us about that 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 potential dichotomy between a leader and how how they're viewed to have handled a crisis versus a party that tends to often at elections be evaluated in a broader sense.
0: It is interesting, isn't it? How voters, you know, we often talk about how dumb the voters are. They get everything wrong. You know, they, you know, all, all that stuff. The line from Uh, Churchill saying that one's faith in democracy uh, uh, diminishes immediately that one actually has to deal with a voter Um, but uh, (laughs) but there is an interesting thing there and you're right Scott Morrison will be looking at that we don't he's a long way away from his test in 2022 uh, but does the carryover of the leaders high approval rating um, lift the boat and uh, and see them across the line Queensland will be really interesting in that as we talk um, uh, it's just popped up as an alert that uh, that victoria uh, has just recorded another record high for deaths at 19. Uh, we're now well into 300 deaths uh the new infection rate continues to fall low at 322 that's obviously uh less than half of the peaks that we've seen in recent days It can go back up again of course we hope it doesn't um but 19 deaths in a single day is quite astonishing over 300 now well over 300 um, nationally since this pandemic began we look to the united states though Hundred and sixty thousand people have died. Five million people have been infected that they know about. Um, the economy is no stronger for that, uh, you know. So all those, all those prophets out in the wilderness saying, "Open the economy and all will be well." The only people who are going to die anyway. Um, it, you know, the plain evidence is that it doesn't help the economy. It just leads to more deaths. Um, but uh, a grim figure out of Victoria today, PVO.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and that's where. Hopefully, the lockdown is having the effect of bringing down the number of new infections, but there is going to be a lag um, to that with deaths, you would think, because of the sheer quantum of people having the virus who are yet to recover from it. And, you know, within that, you've got, you know, younger people that we will lose, but also a large swathe of of older people, particularly from those aged care homes, um, which might see that number continue to rise before it starts to fall in line with the infections falling from the lockdown.
0: Well, if you listen to this, um, there will be eventually better days. So uh, just endure as, uh, you know, as, as again, to quote Churchill, when you're going through hell, keep going. Uh, we wish you all the best. And P.V.O., good to talk to you and uh, just to grab a moment of your time because you're a busy man.
1: Talk again soon, Hugh. Look forward to it. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.